Well, the congregation of the Lord, will you please open your Bibles again to the sixth chapter of John? And let's read together verse 27. John 6, 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Whole congregation, one of the, the most solemn and holy things that takes place in our congregation is when either a pastor or a student for the ministry receives a call to shepherd a congregation as their pastor. And there's so much that goes into that. There's much prayer and searching of the scriptures and, and meditation upon what the will of God is for, for one's life. But for myself, when I was considering the call that you extended to me as your pastor, one of the, the things I, I looked into was, well, what are the opportunities here in, in this community to make an impact for the gospel and the kingdom of the Lord? And it struck me that there was a great university here in, in London, even some 40,000 students attending Western University. And so it's been something that's, that's on my heart. Would it be possible to, to reach out to some of these people at that crucial phase of life and to bring them the message of, of the good news? And so recently I've been going out with uh, a Christian brother who's been witnessing to uh, students for a great many years and so what we've been doing is we go out to those uh, students who are leaving their university classes and, and we seek to share them uh, the great news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those times where you sort of meet those people, for those people who will, who will stop and listen, you're sometimes struck. Here are these, these brilliant young people and they're applying themselves so diligently to their studies in order that they would get a degree so they can get a career so they can provide for a family and make a life for themselves. They're, they're really exerting themselves in that way. And yet so often, and, and it's, it's just such a tragic thing, you would ask them what their plans are for eternity. You would ask them, what is it that they think about the fact that they must die and, and stand before God? And, and the same ones who would be very uh, enthusiastic to tell you what they're doing for their future um, maturity and, and, uh, and, and livelihoods, they sort of draw a blank stare. and They don't really know what to tell you. They haven't really given it much thought. It's it's a tragic thing, isn't it? And that's the, the nation that we live in. That's the society we live in. Most people don't give much thought to the things that really matter. Where will you spend eternity? Well, we're fortunate and, and privileged to be in a position to reflect upon the subject of, of eternal life this morning. You'll notice that Jesus here speaks of that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. And he, he says, this is that meat which we must labor for. It's that which I think would be very profitable to reflect upon in 
preparation for partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, laboring for the bread of eternal life. Let's give some consideration to what we see in this text this morning. And I see three thoughts, really, in the words of the Lord Jesus in verse 27. First, we'll see a command. Second, there is a comparison. And third, there is a promise. A command, a comparison, and a promise. Well, first, let's look at the command that is here. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Now we know the the context which we read. It's in that portion of Christ's ministry when he is especially unveiling his, his wonderful divine glory and his supernatural prerogatives because he's performing these mighty miracles. He's feeding the 5,000 with a, just a few barley loaves and, and small fishes. He's able to multiply in order to feed this great number. And then after he does that, he goes to a solitary mountain to pray. His disciples, they go out on the Sea of Galilee. There's a great storm. And, and Jesus, rather than abandoning them to their fear, he walks out onto the water. He meets them there in their distress, and, and he greets them and brings them safely to the other side. So that's sort of the, the picture, the scene that we have here. And, and what, what we have is that basically the great number of his followers, those who had identified with Jesus Christ in some way because they're called disciples, they who were there with Jesus when he, he fed that, that great multitude, they sort of caught the first ship that was available the morning after that, and they've made their way to Capernaum over the, the Sea of Galilee. And as uh, you can discover if you would read all the way to verse 59, basically they find Jesus as he's teaching and preaching in the synagogue there in Capernaum. And so they're inquiring, they're asking uh, these questions of Jesus of how this came about. You'll notice that in verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? So they're asking how it is that you got here doesn't seem to add up. And, and Jesus doesn't explain. He doesn't explain that he miraculously walked over the water. No, he, he actually uses this opportunity to deal with their spiritual need. And that is the context for this command that is given. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. So here's a, a command that concerns everlasting life. That's the most important thing for us to know. Do we have that? Where will we spend eternity? You think about your short life that you have for just a small number of decades upon this earth. You think about those who you once knew who have now departed. And the question becomes, what will become of us when we die? Do we have 
life everlasting and communion with God? And will we be in a place of favor and blessing? Or will we be facing the everlasting judgment? Well, this command that we would partake of everlasting life, it concerns meat, doesn't it? Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth, endureth unto everlasting life. Now, the thing to understand about the Greek word that's translated meat here is it simply means food. Food. It's something that your body consumes in order to preserve natural life. That's sort of the picture here. And in, in context, as the discussion is about bread, as the... Um, the sermon which Jesus gives unfolds, it's very clear he's, he's talking about that sort of, of food. Labor not for the food which perisheth, but for that food which perisheth unto everlasting life. And as we read there in verse 33, he speaks very clearly about what this food is, which he is referring. He says in verse 33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And then if you would read further in this chapter, in verse 51, Jesus says there, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's what we we see here. Jesus is talking about eternal life through himself. And he's referring to himself as though he were food, as though he were bread. And there's a great many things we can learn here about the one through whom all eternal life comes. And it's important that we would reflect upon this, this description that Jesus gives of himself to ask, is this how we regard Jesus? Is this how we receive him today? Well, the first thing that that we need to see there from verses 33 and and 51, where it's talking about this meat or food or, or bread, is that it is from heaven. The bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. It's talking about about a divine Savior under the picture of this bread. Jesus is the one who comes not from from any mere creaturely reality. Rather, he transcends and is over and above all. He comes from heaven, the dwelling place of God, because he himself is true and eternal God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, eternally equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He has all divine power and authority and wisdom. And so he is the fount of all life. He is the creator of natural life and the sustainer and giver of spiritual life. You know, it's it's why it's called eternal life, because it is the life of God, the life of union and communion with God in Jesus Christ. And so none could give this life except one who is true God. Is that the one to whom you would look this morning, to the divine Savior? But as well, you can see as well, this is the incarnate Savior, 
For as he has come from heaven, he has come to the world, has he not? He's come to this place of darkness and sin and transgression, this place of ignorance, of self-seeking, of alienation from God, this world that is appointed for eternal destruction. God did not give us over to what we deserve, but he sent his Son into this world. He is the bread from heaven. And so in the fullness of time, the Son of God became, as he's called in our text, the Son of Man. He is the one who has both the fullness of divine glory and perfect humanity in one person. He is fully equipped to be the Savior and the life-giving food of needy sinners that come to him as well. You can see this from this description that Jesus gives from himself. He is the suffering Savior. Suffering Savior. Consider the miracle that we read. There is Jesus standing in the midst of this great teeming horde of hungry people pressing in upon him, everyone looking to him. Where will we find this food to eat? Jesus asked his disciples. They have no idea what to do. They've, they've not the foggiest clue how to deal with this problem of a hunger. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he commands them all to sit down. And he goes to that little boy and he says, well, bring what you have. And he, he takes those, those few loaves and those, those puny fishes and he takes them in his hand and he blesses them and he, he breaks that bread. And he distributes it and distributes it and distributes it. And this, this great number of people is is all filled, and he gathers up all the remaining, and and there's all these baskets full after the fact. What an astonishing thing. But we're reminded, aren't we, that there there could be no no feeding of these people if there was not the breaking of bread. There could not be any satisfaction of hunger if there was not the crushing of that bread between the teeth and the, the consuming of it to sustain your life. It can't be that that bread would remain and that that you would would have your hunger satisfied. And so also it is with the Lord Jesus. In his suffering and in his death, his body was broken for us. He was the one through all his life long, was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He bore the cross, despised the shame for the sake of the joy that was set before him. And on the cross, he became a curse for us. Because that body was broken, it is suitable food for sinners. You who lie in the midst of death, you who are condemned by the law, you who deserve God's judgment, Jesus says there is food here, food unto everlasting life. Take and eat. I am crucified and dead for such as you. Will you receive this food, congregation? But as well, that's, that's really connected with it, isn't it? It is, it is an offered Savior. It's an offered Savior. It's a, a Savior who is, who is not just keeping himself locked away from where anyone could get him. It's not like this food is, is locked in a pantry or, or that it's uh, secure in some kind of um, grocery store where you'd, 
You know, if you have nothing to give, you've got nothing that you can, you can buy. No, it's offered freely, gladly. It's interesting what, what uh, proceeds here in this, this conversation that Jesus has with these ones who profess to be his disciples. They, they respond to this command, and this is what they, they say. Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. That is the way he is offered, in order that we would be believed upon. It is belief, it is faith, that is the mouth that opens wide and sees and, and experiences that the Lord is good, that there is eternal life through the Savior, Jesus Christ. But you notice that faith in our passage, in, in verse 7, as it's commanded here, it's set forth in, in a very interesting way. He says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Labor, work, strive for this food. That is the nature of the command here, if you would have Christ, the command is to work for him. I need to understand how that led these, uh, these professing disciples to respond as they did. Well, well, what is the work that we need to do? And Jesus replies, well, the work is, is one of faith. That is the work of God, the work, the work which is pleasing to God, that you would believe upon me. That is is what we see here. And I wonder, is, is that how we're comfortable talking about faith? We've read Galatians, we've read Romans, we've read those portions of Scripture that contrast faith and works. How is it that we can refer to faith as something that is worked? Well, it's, it's important to understand, isn't it, that indeed, when we speak of salvation by works, we're talking about that which merits or earns salvation by the standard of the law. And when we're talking about faith, we're talking about that empty hand and that instrument which receives the blessings of the gospel as they're offered to us in the preaching of the word. They're contrasted. There's no merit or, or virtue in this faith which partakes of this holy food, but rather the faith which receives Christ is something that is given of God and is only of grace and has, has nothing in it to deserve anything. And yet, ought we not to recognize that Jesus would not speak in this way if someone could be passive in saving faith? As though there were nothing for you to do. As though there were no action of the heart whereby the soul rests upon Christ in the gospel, whereby there is the motion of the heart towards this source of righteousness and eternal life, even Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. No, indeed, saving faith is an active thing. It is a striving thing. It is a working thing. Faith is a war. It is something that is, it is done. And so we ought, 
We ought not to mistake congregation. Yes, it is something that God works in the soul. So from that point of view, it is the gift of God. But from our side, it is the solemn duty which we are commanded of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened when John the Baptist was thrown into prison? Well, he was sending his disciples, John the Baptist was, to the Lord Jesus. And he said, well, well are you the one we've been looking for? Or should we, we look for another? So Jesus said, well, look, look around. Look at all the wondrous works I'm performing. The lame walk and the blind see and the deaf hear. And sinners are coming to salvation. And, and then those disciples went away. And then Jesus turned to his followers and said, you know, of, of all those who have been born of woman, none is greater than John the Baptist. And up until John the Baptist... The vi- it, what he said there was that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. That's a striking thing, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven, even all the blessings of salvation, they are not received except they are taken. You cannot consume this food except you would labor for it. And it's not, not only true as that call of the gospel goes forth to an unconverted soul and the duties and commands of the gospel are enjoined so that you must, you must believe upon him if you would receive eternal life. But it's also, it's also true in this way, in the continuance of this eternal life. For indeed, it's not apart from the act of faith that we are heirs of eternal life. God doesn't just zap you and say, well, now you're saved and you can live as you like. No, the faith which is that which receives eternal life initially, it also continues throughout your life. And the means whereby the Lord has appointed to preserve all those who he would grant eternal life is through those things that sustain that faith, even the preaching of the gospel, even the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper, which we are soon to partake of. It is there, through the broken bread and the poured out wine, that our hearts go out to the one who is our true spiritual food and drink, even Jesus Christ, who is the one who sustains our faith. Let us not mistake the congregation. There is a command, a command, if we would have eternal life. And that is that we would labor for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. In the second place, I'd like you to notice that the form which this command takes is that of a contrast. A contrast. So what is enjoined in the gospel is contrasted with its opposite, which that which is incompatible with saving faith. He says, labor not for the meat which perisheth but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life. And I think we get more sense of what is spoken of here if we would read the preceding verse. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, and so on. So there's that contrast, isn't there? If you would labor for the meat that doesn't perish, you must cease laboring for that which 
which does perish. So what is the sense there? Well, perishing, in, in the original language, it is the idea of that which expires, that which goes away, that which is temporary, that which does not last. And you understand that was especially the problem of these people who professed to be followers of the Lord Jesus. They were transfixed and mesmerized by the fact that Jesus had broken that physical bread. He distributed it to all those people. And, and Jesus understood because he looks in the heart of everyone. He understood that these people were not looking to the spiritual significance of this and the one who had given them that physical bread. No, quite to the contrary. That was really what they wanted. They wanted physical food. Their God, as it were, was their belly. They wanted their physical need to be satisfied, and that was their prevailing occupation. And of course, we ought not to interpret this verse in a way that would contradict the clear command to work for what you eat. Paul says very explicitly, if you do not work in the ordinary course of life, you shall not eat either. You know, that is an important duty that you, you toil in order to earn a living. So what is it that Jesus is saying here? Well, well, surely if he's saying anything at all, he's at least saying this, right? That there is a temptation, isn't there, to be so occupied with your physical needs, those things which you deem necessary for your survival, for your comfort, and for your well-being, indeed, physical food, physical drink, health, money, place to live, a family to have, maybe even a community to be part of. These are the things that truly are the prevailing occupation of your heart and mind, such that laboring for the meat which does not perish falls into a very distant second, or perhaps is crowded out altogether. And such a person may not, may not receive eternal life. It's the solemn truth, isn't it? And it would apply to other things as well, couldn't, couldn't it? Not only just physical needs, but what of worldly desires? What of the enticements that this wretched, sin-filled world would offer unto the children of light. Those things which the devil brings close unto your mind and soul and says, why don't you savor of, of this forbidden fruit today? Why don't you just give in this one time and satisfy that itch or craving or appetite? Surely God was unjust to deny you what you really need. And so it is that, that many who profess to be Christians, they live life enslaved to such desires and appetites. They indeed know not what it is to truly strive against sin. For each battle but leaves them decimated. They know not the power of the Spirit in their life which comes through the new birth. And so they do not labor for that meat which, which does not perish, but for that which does perish, for the things that are appointed for everlasting destruction, 
even the devil and his kingdom and the sins which he would entice us in. Oh, congregation, what folly it is to live for the passing pleasures of sin when the glorious inheritance of the children of light is held forth in the gospel. Why would you feed on dust and ashes when a great love feast of communion with God is held forth in the gospel? True and sound pleasure, even life and life abundant, is found only through Jesus Christ. How is there not a final warning in this comparison as well, also towards religious formalism. Religious formalism. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. The great folly of, for example, the Roman Catholic Church and other traditions like that is that they would direct you wholly and simply to the physical elements of of a sacrament. And they would say, well, you know, there's something about this physical bread and physical wine that is really the point. And so there's all these superstitious views about a transformation of the physical elements as though it were not by the Spirit of God that we are united to Christ, as though it was not by faith that we are united to him and feed upon his wonderful death for sinners. No. And yet it's also a temptation even for us. As you, believer, would prepare to stand or rather sit around this table and as the elements are distributed to you, I would implore you to not be satisfied just by, by consuming that food in your mouth. No, with the heart and with the soul, feed upon the true bread from heaven. Feed upon Christ and him crucified. You can be satisfied with nothing else than the faith which unites you to Christ and receives of his eternal life. Final word here, not only a command, not only a comparison, but also a promise. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Here is a word from the Son of Man. Even the God-man, Jesus Christ, God and man in one person. If I should give you a promise, would you believe me? Would you trust me? Have I ever lied to you about something? How about you think about the person you trust most in the world? If they would speak something to you, would you second-guess them? Or would you bank your life upon it? Well, how much more when the very Son of God comes to you personally and says, well, here is the meat that does not perish. Here is the food unto everlasting life. Here I am, crucified and dead for sinners. And because he is risen and because he ever lives, he may offer this spiritual food and drink unto sinners also today. It's a solemn promise. All those who believe upon his name shall not be put to shame. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, the Son of Man shall give unto you. Jesus Christ is so generous. 
there in the feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't hoard. What does he have to hoard? The heavens and the heavens are his. And yet he is one who is such a generous benefactor to give unto the needy. He will give abundantly above what we could ask or think if we would but apply unto him for this spiritual food. If you yet lie in the midst of death, do not doubt his mercy, do not doubt his grace. No, 